Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, I'm your inner dream monologue and you're fast asleep, so I'll be quick. Great job using the Colgate Optic White Overnight Teeth Whitening Pen before bed. When used as directed, it gives you a visibly whiter smile in just seven days. So while I fly and talk to animals, you're removing teeth stains with ease. Sweet dreams. And when you wake up, keep on living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. to episode 95 of the See Here podcast. My name is Morris. I'm here in Melbourne. The See Here podcast is proudly part of the Pantheon Network of Music Discussion Podcasts. Over in Bath, my wonderful regular co-host, at least I hope he's regular, is Mr. Bernard Stickwell. Yeah, everything's good today. Don't worry. Good afternoon. Good morning. <laughs> Say good night to the folks, Gracie. Yep. And as you may have guessed, our uh, regular compadre from uh, Brantford, uh, Mr. Tim Merrill, is not available to do this episode. He wasn't feeling so well, so I hope you're feeling better, Tim. But we do have someone else. We can't replace Tim. No one can replace Tim, but we have someone who's going to replace Tim. This time. Well, actually, not true, because she was going to be on the show anyway. Uh, I'm hugely excited to welcome to the show someone who I've wanted to have on the show forever, local film writer. So another Melbourneite. I'm very excited about having someone else from Melbourne on the show. Author, broadcaster, film commentator on DVDs and Blu-rays. Loudmouth. Uh, you'll, you'll fit in quite well over here. Loudmouth. And possessor of a Gilbert Gottfried cameo, but we won't talk about that. Ms. Emma Westwood, welcome to the show, Emma. I was trying to hold back. See, I'm such a loudmouth that I was going to butt in. Oh, to my own. I butt into my own intros, you know. I could never be on Gilbert's show because his intros are so long. Yeah, but they it, just go on forever. But on Gilbert's shows, he carries on for so long and you get some of the more comedic-oriented guests who say, shut the fuck up, Gilbert, and just get on with it. Oh, Mario, you could be our Mario Cantone because he always butts in. Oh, <laughs> Mario Cantone. Oh, God. gee, if only Mario Cantone or Tim Merrill. I don't know who I'm, I'm replacing or who I'm, I'm being in this show. This is you're your own person. This is all. Uh, this is a uh, combination of the two for us, Emma. Oh God! <laughs> Talk 
about pressure. No pressure, Emma. No pressure. For those people out there who don't know Emma or her work, as I said, she's a, an author and has written some amazing books. I mean, the first time I got introduced to you was when your cousin, my wonderful friend, Robert Exelman, introduced me to your book, Monster Movies. And I fell in love with that book. And I said, you've got to introduce me to your cousin. And it took a while before that ended up happening, but finally did. And um, <laughs> you've recently written a book about a film that I'm pretty sure would be close to your heart, Bernie Seconds. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fantastic book on that brilliant film. But I'd love to give you the floor briefly, Emma, to talk about your latest project before we even talk about what we're here to discuss today. But please talk about <laughs> your latest project. Oh, I've been in the lab. I've been a scientist cooking up my new monster project, literally being Dr. Frankenstein, really, curating and editing um, a book on Bride of Frankenstein. So appropriately, nice meta detailing. I am assembling it from um, the writings of other other people. So I've had a whole lot of writers who are contributing to this this book and uh, they've all chosen themes about the film that they want to write about. So it's kind of like a, a bit of a, a book to honour the legacy. It's not a making of book as such. It goes in some really interesting, weird and wonderful ways, which is appropriate, I think, in the honouring of a film that really is an early masterpiece. It's kind of approaching, coming up not far from 100 years old, which is a hell of a long time when it comes down to cinematic arts. So I'm about to deliver the manuscript. In fact, in the next couple of days, it'll be heading sort of your way, Bernie. So British publisher. In fact, all my publishers are British. All Who's the stuff's so? going on over there. Who's publishing um, it, may I ask? You may. The publishing house is Electric Dream House. And okay. they part of PS Publishing's Neil Snowden is it's he he runs that and he's a very dedicated, excellent publisher of wonderful film tomes. I approached him about doing an essay book because I thought he would be actually open to it as well because he did that great Nigel Neal book, We Are the Martians, on oh, okay. um, essays of yeah on Nigel Neal stuff, which probably resonates more with the British listeners than mm -hmm. anyone else. I don't know whether anyone else really knows Nigel Neal, although if I remember rightly, he was the scribe on was it Piranha 2 something really weird like that um, yeah yeah something like that but he did all the Quatermass scripts I just watched the stone tape for the first time recently oh really was, yeah uh, yeah fantastic yeah very British centric in the way that Hammer mm -hmm. Hammer Studios are so anyway yeah it's very exciting to be able to deliver that and who knows what next I don't actually have a project on the cards next so I'll just see where the wind blows me basically when is the projected release date of the book? Oh, who knows? This is a thing. When you deliver these things, you're sort of at the mercy of whatever the publisher's schedule is and a whole lot of other elements. But basically, well, look, I hope this year. So we're, we're talking in 2022. So hopefully this year. At this stage, I should actually mention what we're here for. This is a music film discussion podcast. And this month, we actually have a film that people might have heard of. People might have actually seen. This was possibly the biggest music film of God knows how long. This is called Summer of Soul or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised. It's at some cinema screenings. It's currently showing, I think, on the Disney Channel if you want to watch it that way. So who knows? We might actually get a couple of listeners for this one. That'd be nice. But we're here to talk about the music, the politics, the film. So what we'll do now is we're going to play the trailer and then we'll all be back after that to talk about Summer of Soul or When the Revolution could not be televised. You're listening to See Here. 
here, episode 95. Are you ready, black people? Are you ready? Are you really ready? Are you ready to listen to all the beautiful black voices, the beautiful black feeling, the beautiful black waves moving in beautiful air? Are you ready, black people? Are you ready? Nobody ever heard of the Harlem Culture Festival. Nobody would believe that happened. Six weekends of major artists. The Panthers were the security and kids were sitting up on the trees. I was nervous. I didn't expect a crowd like that. Something very important was happening. It wasn't just about the music. 1969 was a change of era in the black community. The styles were changing. Music was changing. And revolution was coming together. We are a new people. We are a beautiful people. That concert took my life from black and white into color. We wanted progress. We are black people and we should be proud of this. We were coming together to say this was our world and how beautiful it was. We're going to try to sing a song together. Don't wait for your neighbor, because your neighbor might be waiting for you. We believed in what we felt in here. So when we went up, let's go. Let's go do it. Morris over here, Bernie over there, Emma's sort of over here, which is great. Down the, down road. the road. Not four hours down the road, Bernie. We're only, <laughs> I was just going to say four hours drive. <laughs> so the film this time around is Summer of Soul, came out in 2021, directed by Akmir Khalid Thompson, also known as Questlove, the drummer of The Roots musical director for Jimmy Fallon, and the film stars a few people, people of our age might have heard of, Let's see, a few obscurities. Stevie Wonder, Mahalia Jackson, The Staple Singers, Nina Simone, Max Roach and Abby Lincoln, Sly and the Family Stone, B.B. King, and a ton of other musicians and thousands of ecstatic music fans. The IMDb description. Documentary about the legendary 1969 Harlem Cultural Festival, which celebrates African-American music and culture and promoted black pride and unity. Now, for once, IMDb sort of got it right. The thing is, I'm going to be pedantic here and take out the word legendary out of that description, because to imply legendary in my mind means that it's something that people have known about for years. 
And apart from actually, I was reading into a book. I can't remember who the author was, but I was reading this book about events in Harlem in 1969. And this book is like a few years published. And there was actually a chapter that focused a lot on the festival and Nina Simone in particular. But the whole thing about this film, how it was sold, is that most people had forgotten it because video for this and it had been filmed like 40 hours worth of footage had been filmed for American television and like a little bit was put on television at the time and then completely forgotten about so really legendary most people didn't even remember that it existed uh, we'll talk a little bit about our understanding of how it existed as we go further on so Emma you're our guest first time guest and hopefully first of many times I bumped into you at the cinema sometime in December. I was with Max and we were talking about stuff that we'd seen recently. And you said, oh, I just recently watched what is possibly one of the best films I've seen all year, Summer of Soul. And that's when I knew, right, I've now got an in to get you on the program. So, <laughs> so I want to... You cheeky bastard. I, that's, that's the way how I work. Uh, so I want to know from you, what was it that made you say that this film was in your top films of 2021? And I think you might have even said it might be one of the best films I've seen in years. Initial thoughts. Initial thoughts. I heard of it, obviously. I, and, and it interests me because... I enjoy seeing that sweet spot. For, that's a sweet spot for me in music, in soul music. I enjoy soul, R&B, funk music. I was a bass player from way back when I was a kid, so this always speaks to me, this kind of music. To hear of something that's uncovered new footage of live performance, my radar, my antennas go up and think, oh, oh okay, that's interesting. So I find for me, basically, music is I've always come from the point of view that you know, recorded music is great and it's there, you know, it's an art form in itself, but it's there because you can't see them live in all the time in your living room anyway. So it's so you can have access to music when you want it. But for me, music really comes into it its own as a live performance. So to hear of this, you know, live footage, obviously something that I'm never going to be able to experience because it's from 50-odd years ago. It's like a feeling of when I was a kid in the 80s, you know, when you're uncovering films at the the video shop that, you know, some little jam you've heard of, but it's not in wide release or, you know, and you find it in the dusty corner of the video shop. Those old days, ye olde days when it was really uncovering treasures. So this is like kind of had the feeling of, you know, the treasure hunt, uncovering a treasure. But when I went into first watching it, I don't think I realised that it was going to be so much of a documentary of the time. I mean, there's this essence of it being always it will be something of its time. But this wasn't just a concert footage film. This is about contextualising it in the sense of that era. And in some ways, it could have detracted from its essence, I guess, or from its footage. But what I was really impressed with was that Questlove, he seems to be a very intuitive storyteller to me. And obviously, his music knowledge is right up there. So he 
he was able to produce something that was incredibly satisfying on the level of a concert film and evenly weighted with the storytelling and, and being able to piece it into that time, which is not an easy thing to do. It could have resulted in me feeling like, oh, why did you chop that song off? I wanted to hear more of that or whatever. But he seemed to be able to instinctively pick up the concert footage at the right times. I mean, he had 40 hours of footage. This film goes for two hours, you know, so there's a lot that's not in there. For example, let's just say, all right, it opens on Stevie Wonder, which I doubt Stevie Wonder was the opener, but it's nevertheless, this documentary opens on Stevie Wonder. And it goes into him doing, you know, Stevie Wonder getting on drums. He's a multi-instrumentalist. I don't know whether I've seen Stevie Wonder on drums before. Those early 70s Stevie Wonder albums, that's him playing drums on all those early tracks. So you're talking about Superwoman. We were singing Superwoman before. Pretty sure yeah. that's him on drums. Uh, Superstition, that's all him. And I can't find it on YouTube anymore, but I'm pretty sure there. I'd seen some footage a few years ago. He was on the Johnny Cash show. And Johnny Cash is doing a lyrically revised version of his song, Get Rhythm. He said, get rhythm when Stevie plays harmonica. Come on, get rhythm. And then you see Stevie playing the harmonica. And then get rhythm when Stevie plays the drum. Come on, get rhythm. get the blues, big rhythm on them drums. Yeah, when you get the blues. Stevie's just going nuts on the drum kit. And so I'd known from there just how impressive. Yeah, yeah. you don't often get to see, it's interesting when you see someone, you know, you're used to seeing someone in front of the keyboards or maybe, you know, on the playing harmonica and then to see them play something else, it kind of has this effect of, oh, sort of awakening effect. So I think it was a really smart idea to put that right at the start. But not only the way he did that, but he intercuts it with a whole lot of other footage, which is the contextualized like a kind of onslaught of imagery and he cuts it to the drum image and he and to the beat and then actually intercuts it into the footage as well not just the sounds or not just the audio but the visual as well it's beautifully done it's really quite subtle it's not something that jumps out as hey look at me it's, it's not a flashy way of a flashy storytelling it's just as an audience member, I think it really just grabs you straight away and brings you right into it. A beautiful setup for what then comes after it, basically. So that's one of the reasons. I'll give you one other reason. I don't want it to detract from the film. It could sound like it, it actually, the film, it could detract from it in a way. But because of we've been through this COVID stage and we've all been starved of live music and everything, there is something of seeing it at that time too that is particularly exciting and it sort of 
makes us realise what we've missed out on and creates a little bit of excitement for what we could possibly see. I mean, I've only, I just said to you guys, I've been out to a live gig just a couple of days ago. That was Marcus Valle, who's a Brazilian artist, who's another artist from the 60s. So I'm kind of living a summer of soul experience. The the ones that are around still that you can still Mm -hmm. see, because unfortunately watching um, Summer of Soul as a nostalgia trip, you realise how many of them are not with us anymore. So do you remember the Harlem Cultural Festival that summer 1969? Well, it's interesting, Emma, I was just talking about COVID and the pandemic. I actually watched this when I was self-isolating for a week. I touched wood, it's the only time I've had to do it. But one of my uh, work colleagues had uh, tested positive for COVID. So I had to isolate for 10 days. So obviously I've watched a lot of movies and this and uh, the Sparks documentary I watched on uh, on the same day. So that was uh, pretty intense. Yeah, I mean, what, what really struck me, going back to what you were saying, Emma, there's a couple of things. Firstly, just the, the fact that this had literally lain undiscovered for the best part of 50 years is just insane. Something featuring artists of those magnitude, you couldn't make it up that this had been sort of, you know, literally in someone's basement for 50 years. So that in itself was, you know, cause for celebration and made it an instant sort of must see. And the other thing you were saying, Emma, about the way it's put together, the way Questlove does a really amazing job of balancing the actual concert footage with, you know, the cultural elements, the political elements that were going on at the time, the whole zeitgeist, the late 60s with the not just the world changing but the black community in particular changing america changing it's very even-handed it never gets too heavy and it never gets too light and as, as you say he uses the music to emphasize the other things that are going on and he uses the other things that are going on to emphasize the music yeah it's just mind-bogglingly good it really is i want to give credit there i mean i know that you know quest love this is his film but no one man or woman is responsible for a whole film. Mm. And I'd like to also single out the name Josh Pearson, who is the editor of this film. I think you were talking before, Emma, about getting the balance right. And that is a, in a large part, you know, maybe it's Questlove's vision for what he wants to see. But Josh Pearson is the guy who executes it and getting the contextual clips of the politics of the time and the wider story of what was happening with the moon landing, say, or or problems in Harlem. There were riots the previous year and the deaths of Martin Luther King. Mm. How they slipped that in. It's, It's not like, here's a bit of music, here's a bit of context. They join them. Like you might see the start of a song. At no time in watching this film where I'm thinking, gee, I wish they'd just let this song run out. No, I'm glad that they're getting a bit of music, getting some of the context within the context of the song. In the um, the gospel sections of the film, we hear the stories of Martin Luther King. We get to see a bit of Reverend Jesse Jackson giving his speech. Oh, yeah, he's Operation Breadbasket Band. We get to see footage and we get to hear, I think, was it Ben Branch who was saying how, like he was the last person to talk to Dr. King before he was mm-hmm. assassinated. And it's all put in context while we're listening to the music and hearing Mavis Staples and Mahalia Jackson singing My Precious Lord, which was Dr. King's favourite song. <laughs> I'm tired 
you couldn't put that after or before. It had to go within. And this is one of those rare times where you're watching a musical performance and if they interrupt it, I never thought, oh, damn it, why can't just, they just let the song finish? No, because the politics and the music are not separate. They're working with each other. You don't do one without the other. Yeah, it's a really difficult balancing act. And you, as you said, Morris, I think the giving kudos to their editor, I've got immense respect for editors right across the board and the relationship that they have with the director as well in being able to understand that vision and be able to communicate it and bring it together and make sense of it. Because I can imagine discussions that would have been taken place trying to whittle down the material for this because there's not only the concert footage but an immense amount of other footage that is cut into this and where they were accessing that and how they were choosing that footage. It's a lot of work at a tight two hours. That's the only thing. I know some people have gone and suggested that they would love to see like a 10-hour mini-series of this and it's interesting the release of this because we've just had the eight-hour mini-series expansion of Let It Be ostensibly Peter Jackson's vision of the 1969 Get Back Let It Be sessions as three three-hour films or three two-and-a-half-hour films. Which I'm yet to see. You just reminded me. I've got to watch it. Just as an aside, it's one for the diehard Beatles fans. I love it, but I'd be curious as to people who are just casually interested in the Beatles but are interested in rock history, where they'd stand on it. Certainly, it's a better narrative than Let It Be was, but that's as an aside. But yes, some people have gone and said, we'd like to see more. And I can see why they say that, but I think that this is such a great two-hour time capsule. You'd get a 10-hour series, maybe you'd get more musical performances, but as I think we've already ascertained here, this film is not a concert film. This is not like watching Martin Scorsese's The Last Waltz. I think, you know, you were sending us a note, Emma, you're saying, right, uh, I'm going to bring up what stacks, which I was thinking, yeah, well, duh, uh, which came two years after another (laughs) great musical political film. But it's been a while since I've seen it. If I recall correctly, there are more whole musical performances mixed with the political stuff and the social context surrounding that. But once they play a song, they play a song, whereas that's not what's done here, if my memory serves right. You're actually right, but it's strange, the perception that comes away and not taking anything away from what stacks as such because I do love that documentary I actually had a feeling of watching more music and experiencing more music in Summer of Soul for some reason that's the editing the decision making of what to put in at certain times and and so on it's obvious to make comparisons between the two but the point of difference the massive point of difference is what stacks was made at the time and reflecting on like a fly on the wall experience mm-hmm. of observational of what was happening at that time not far off from summer of souls time just a couple of years on as you were saying morris and it has no voiceovers or anything like that so all of the people chatting about the conditions of black people in the u.s at that time is just like chatting to someone in the street just intercut it's not really contextualized in any way except the little asides from the concert footage 
And so Summer of Soul, it is actually starkly different because it is a nostalgia trip. This is us reflecting, looking back, people reflecting on the experience of that. And it becomes so much more loaded for a number of reasons. I mean, nostalgia through documentary, film documentaries and film in general plays out in a massive way and a very multi-layered way in whether it's non-fiction or fictional films. In this one, I think that there is, in Summer of Soul, there's lots going on. What Stacks was quite simple in its approach and in what it was saying. It was trying to give an in to people, I reckon possibly even something for white people to say, hey, you might not realise this. And I don't think there were many white people at that What Stacks concert, whereas there were more white people at the one, the Harlem Cultural Festival in Summer of Soul. Not a heap, but there were. There was, you know, it was definitely a mixed event. But what Questlove's really doing with Summer of Soul is trying to not only give this remarkable footage airtime again and reveal it to us and new people, but also say, don't forget. And there was a whole lot of stuff around that, this positioning of the erasure of black history. And it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's interesting because there's even the erasure of black history with good intent, right? For example, I don't know whether you guys have ever watched that. I think it's a Netflix series, Bridgerton, where it shows... Oh, yeah. Yeah. You've seen it, Bernie, so yeah. My my wife likes it, so I I sat through most of it, yeah, yeah. (laughs) It is very much like reading, uh, you know, a Mills and Boone, watching a Mills and Boone, (laughs) right? You know, got this very handsome black duke, right, in it, and it's kind of like a bit of a Mr. Darcy, Elizabeth push-pull kind of relationship with him and the lead character. But he's a black duke, right? It's all about representation and showing different faces on TV and film these days. But Bridgerton said in, oh, I guess, the rough period is the 1800s. There were mm-hmm. no black dukes in the 1800s. Mm-hmm. And while it's well-intentioned to show that, you you do run the risk of a whole generation growing up and seeing that, thinking that was the way it was and not realising that it wasn't like that, <laughs> that there was a horrible cruelty and there was a whole lot of suffering and it wasn't just everyone, mixed races coming together and having equal opportunity in society. So things like Summer of Soul are very important because they actually show the way things were and remind people. I think what stacks is a document of the events and Summer of Soul is more of a document of the times, even though it's focused on the event. It's got a much broader scope in what it's dealing with. You're right at the crux of it, but at least in Watts stacks, they do give some social context because they do talk about the 1965 Watts County riots. That was the impetus for the Watts stacks concert to go ahead. The other difference between Watts stacks and Summer of Soul is that Watts stacks is a document from the time, not just of the time. It's from the yeah. time summer of soul has been pieced together looking back but you said before emma about that the film could be seen as uh, being nostalgic because this is how things were back then but at least uh, this is how i'm reading it is that quest love is really really super smart and that he lets the film speak for itself in how it's relevant to today so when they mentioned that there was a lot of police brutality in the events leading up to this or the police didn't give a shit to come and initially 
mm-hmm. provide security for the festival. There's stuff, especially with the brutality, nothing has changed. And we all we recall is like here in, you know, in re- the last couple of years with the whole incident with George Floyd. And he, mm-hmm. I love that quest love. He doesn't have to say it because this is a film of that time. We don't need to modern contextualize, but you're going to obviously take that away from it. Unlike someone like Spike Lee, who with his film, The Black Klansman, which I thought was an excellent film. But at the end of that, he says, well, just in case you didn't get the point, I'm going to show footage of the rioting from 2020. Morris, you have no idea how pleased I am to hear you say that. I thought I was one of the only people who came out of that film. It's kind of, uh, maybe you weren't questioning it, but I was questioning that addition at the end. You know, I do love, well, a couple of Spike Lee films are, are my favourite films ever made. And I love that film as well. But the end seemed to tramp on it was too heavy. It was like, as in, it was, when I say heavy, it wasn't too heavy in terms of material, although it was heavy material. It was just that we didn't need that heavy-handedness. I did. I felt like he was speaking down to his audience because we all knew that that was going on. In fact, the subtlety of being able to draw that bow between what happened then to what's happening now just by watching the news or being a part of it seems so much stronger. I actually was on a show and talking to people who said, oh, no, I felt that that his addition of that footage at the end made it. It wasn't my experience at all. I'm glad that Questlove didn't feel the need to put that in there he doesn't speak down to his audience. He speaks to people's intelligence, which means that you'll always get a better response to what you're saying as well. The nostalgia experience is interesting because in looking back at something, he's kind of contextualizing it in a, a really fraught time, really difficult time. Well, difficult time and a time of change for in, the, in terms of the black experience and civil rights movement in America. But with nostalgia, he couples it. This is this lovely conflict that creates the drama of it as well. He talks about the beauty of it all. In fact, I think one of the last lines was of the film, I actually noted it down. What was the last line? How beautiful it was. Literally Mm. talked about beauty. So nostalgia is often about painting things in, you know, throws tinted glasses, you know, looking back at things and looking at the good things. The recollections were very much about the good things. You know, you had people sitting there, people who were punters, just everyday punters going, there. It wasn't just talking to the musicians. It was talking to the people, the actual people of Harlem. And one guy was so young. It was a memory he'd almost forgotten. And to have this confirmed that it was something that actually happened. And his first crush on Marilyn McCoo, you know, in Fifth Dimension. I remember looking at Marilyn McCoo. She was so beautiful that I was just like transfixed. I thought she was the most beautiful woman I've ever seen in my life. Gosh, she's my first crush, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> was really beautiful and he cried when he watched it and you can even see when Marilyn McCoo and the the Fifth Dimension is recalling their moments of being on stage they're emotional, they feel really emotional so what's lovely is that in often presenting things about bad times or bad moments or bad incidents it's all painted bad but life's just not like that You know, Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's been moments of joy during the global pandemic, we've all lived, we've all had children got married, had celebrations, had moments of kindness. So he fills out the full picture. He gives a 360-degree emotional experience, which is incredibly important, I feel, in presenting a full storytelling experience. Do it, do it, go right uptown. 
unfortunately, as realistic a picture as this film portrays, you look and see, right, well, what happens on either side of the, Well, we know what happens before it because that's sort of presented to put it in context. But whereas you watch this film and sort of think, right, there's some level of hope, but we know that things didn't improve necessarily. No. But, but on the other hand, it's also nice to sort of see, well, these people who'd been through a lot still kept up their optimism. And this guy, Tony Lawrence, who I want to talk about, uh, Wow, what <laughs> yes. a so Tony, Tony for those who haven't seen the film yet, and why not? Watch it, damn it. But Tony Lawrence was this entrepreneur. He started out as a lounge singer. And I think someone describes him in the film as a hustler in the best possible way because he could talk to the musicians and convince them to do this festival when a lot of them and their management were saying, hey, well, what's in it for us? Are we going to get paid? And he convinced them all and he convinced the mayor and the local politicians to get this guy. I mean, as you would know, Bernie, we're not great fans of a lot of musical biopics, but this is something, the story about how he puts this together. Or this, you imagine, this is a, yeah. This is yeah. a story that's crying out for its own biopic, you know, how he went from being this land singer to being this guy who had a dream and put on this big show. He's, well, he's quite a, you know... Robert Kennedy and stuff. That was kind of... There's pictures of him, wasn't there? That's just... Yeah. It kind of... I did read a little thing on what is, who is Tony Lawrence, which was really interesting. It was... I think the piece was originally written quite a bit before this doco came out. It seemed like he was always on the brink of some sort of greatness that never actually happened. And he also was incredibly charismatic. Like, he's a good-looking man. He's very confident. Mm. He has a whole lot of great outfits that he wears. <laughs> that, that, the that's, there's the editing in that film. They show all those outfits. They show a second of this. Ladies yes. and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen. I didn't realise initially that this, the footage was shot over a series of days because the event lasted, what, four or five days, something like that? It was six weekends. They filmed all but the last weekend. Oh, oh okay. There we go. So basically, yeah, you know, the, the happened over a, a period of time so I, I didn't realize that initially so when i first watched it i thought is this guy literally changing his clothes in between every act <laughs> because like you say he had a, all these amazing outfits on but at least 15 was, 20 different where did, that, where did that budget come from it came yeah, from yeah, maxwell just... house the harlem cultural festival is being brought to you by maxwell household coffee Man found it first in the humid highlands of Kenya and in the misty plateaus of Abyssinia. A little brown bean. And at the heart of Instant Maxwell House is the little brown bean from the rich moist soil on the misty slopes of Africa. On the misty yes. slopes of Africa is a little brown bean. How great was that ad? So, yeah, Maxwell House was their sponsor. And when you see the ad, um, if you haven't seen the documentary, it's particularly Afrocentric and it's got a voiceover is some guy with a – puts Barry White to shame. <laughs> Beautiful voice, actually. Gorgeous. It sounds like a cross between Orson Welles and James Earl Jones. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I think I fell in love with him a little as I was listening <laughs> to that little brown bean on the and it's it's little journey i mean i felt for that brown bean that was then going to be grind ground up and provide made into instant coffee <laughs> but the other thing that struck me and when watching this as well was 
the feat of Lawrence, Tony Lawrence, to get it together. Like, you know, there's one thing of getting together a, um, a music event and, and Morris, we've just been talking, you've just been back from a music festival, Port Ferry Music Festival. And I actually know one of the organisers and he posted a picture on his Facebook account after it of him on stage sort of looking quite emotional. And he was very emotional in his post about how much work it has been to bring this together, especially at the moment with the time of arts and live event closures and all of that last couple of years, which has been a long time. So with Summer of Soul, with the Harlem Cultural Festival, there's an added element that I think that needs to be acknowledged, which is, first of all, he this wasn't his first one. This was his right. third one. So it had ha- ha- actually happened on a, an annual basis. Tony Lawrence had been behind it. So it had a little bit of a reputation before this. And I think it was the last one. No, there was some financial problems, but it did come back with a yeah. Of smaller festivals in, I think, 1973, 1974 might have been the last one. But this one was certainly the biggest one. So another interesting thing to note, I listened to an interview with Questlove and really interesting question posed and said, well, was this festival unique? Was this the only one of its type? And he said, no, it wasn't. This is the one that we have filmed evidence of. But so many people had like come to him after they knew he was working on this project and talked about there were similar festivals in other parts of the States at the same time. So the Harlem Cultural Festival, we're celebrating this now and all the great acts that were in it, but by no means was this the only festival of its type. Was it the only one? Yeah. The fact that it happened in New York City at this time, and it was a look more of a pressure cooker environment. So that's what the great obstacle I think that he had to overcome. And we've already mentioned the New York City police who weren't willing to step up and provide security, so the Black Panthers did instead. But the fact that this could have turned on a dime, right, at any Mm. stage, this could have gone wrong, you know, or it was the perception of people at the time and possibly white people at the time that it could turn into something awful or the black masses were ready to rise up because that was the flavour. This was, you know, this was the civil rights time. I mean, this was only a year after Malcolm X and Robert Kennedy had been assassinated. Oh, not Malcolm X, sorry, Martin Luther King. Malcolm X had been assassinated in 1965. Yep, yep, he was earlier. There was a lot going on. I mean, there were, there were, was it the <laughs> Chicago riots? Yeah. Was that about this time? There was a moment here and there where, and this is what another aspect of the storytelling that Questlove decided to include, which he may not have, which were just those moments of Tony Lawrence on stage going, you've got to settle down or move back or, you know, when there was crowds, you know, people kind of cramming in closer to the stage and we'll have to stop the show if you... Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to have to stop the show. If you keep on pushing, we're going to have to stop the show right here kind of giving that sense of this could go wrong. Any amount, any place where you've got a mass mob of people could go incredibly wrong at any time. And we've seen it at a number of things. We've seen it at football events. So, you know, these things, and you know, people do weird things in mobs. So the feeling of at that time of Black America rising up and there could be a tipping point. It could act as a tipping point. But instead, and this is what this film shows, it shows where something could have gone wrong, but it didn't. I mean, you know, having Black Panthers there as security, I mean, we know how what happened when the Hells Angels were security at an event. I'm not saying that the Hells Angels are Black Panthers at all. There's a difference in that the Black Panthers, even though you know, it's a very militaristic, but they were looking after their community, whereas the, the Hells yeah. 
themselves yeah, angels. Their community, exactly. They weren't looking after anyone except themselves and their motorbikes. Yes, exactly. The poem that basically it was like a spoken word poem. It was sort of more Gil Scott Heronish. David Nelson, he was a member of what's it called The Last Poets or something like that. Oh, was he? Okay, okay. all right. Yep. Yep. It's interesting you bring up Gil Scott Heron because the subtitle of the film is When the Revolution <laughs> yes. Could Not Be Televised. And I'm thinking, how the hell did Gil Scott Heron not get involved with this festival? He would have been an absolute natural. Yeah, strange. An absolute he, natural for this. He might have been at another festival <laughs> at the time. <laughs> but there was a lot of a feel of the heat as well. You know, you got a sense of how hot it was. And New York, I don't know whether you guys have been to New York in summer, but it is very stifling. You know, it's quite a claustrophobic environment that creates literally an environment, a pressure cooker effect, <laughs> like being actually in a pressure cooker. And that kind of was reflective. That felt really recalled the Spike Lee, do the right thing, you know, summer of Sam. I'll come back to that. But that whole heat, the heat in New York at that time. And obviously Harlem was hotter than the rest of New York. Harlem was, there wasn't a lot of AC around even at that time, even in more affluent areas, let alone in Harlem. You were just, you were hot. You had, you had the water, the high the water hydrants on the street were what you use to cool down. But yeah, that's the, even the title, that's the thing. We, we were just referring to when the revolution could not be televised, which is kind of the extended title. But Summer of Soul, I think it's a super clever title and it, and it really plays on all the aspects that he's talking about in this documentary. So even to just have it SOS, call for help, it has that feeling of urgency going on. This was where things were changing and, and it was an emergency often emergency situations evolved out of that but also the summer of sam that was for another seven or eight years the whole summer of sam thing wasn't it it wasn't but i still think it was part of that we're moving into the 70s and it's part of that new york across the 70s experience of threat city uh, street threat and it, it and it still plays into that feeling of what's going on at that time or what's the the, the zeitgeist i feel really sort of stressed stretch from let's say sort of 65 right through to that kind of 1980. There was a definite New York feel at that period of time. But it's obviously a, a very important period in American history and one that really interests me because it was so much change, so much change going on at the one time. I feel that they could have had a play on words with the title, we you know, or when the revolution could not be televised. I actually almost think that it could have worked as well with when the evolution could not be televised because the times that were changing politically yeah. and the times appropriately for this film musically were changing the sweet Motown sounds of a few years previous were yes. not uh, yes. that's why I sort of, of thought that uh, David Ruffin was possibly the odd man out musically in the film Can I get you to sing along with me one time? Well, I, I can hear you. He sings great and it's a great song, but My Girl, to me, didn't sort of work as a song while we're having 
songs like you know, Nina Simone doing Young, Gifted and Black or Sly and the Family mm-hmm. Stone or Abby Lincoln and Max Roach doing Freedom. It just seemed, yeah, yeah, it really yeah. seemed out of place. But I think Motown were only like, there's still another year or two away before they're releasing Marvin Gaye doing What's Going On. Now, if that had been at about that time where he's really early precursor to 2022 world environmental concerns, he was knowing in 1971 that the world is in yeah. bad shape from an environmental perspective. He would have fitted, but Motown was still, that was two years away. But Stevie Wonder at that time, he was evolving. He wasn't doing fingertips or signed, sealed, delivered. He was moving into that 1970s funk thing with also he was doing songs with political concern like Living for the City. I mean, he wasn't doing that there, but at least musically with what he was playing uh, both in that intro bit plus later on where he's behind the piano, he's musically evolved. And that's why I think it would have been an equally good title for the film. So at this point, I know we've spoken a lot about the politics and the context, which is a strong part of the story, but I want to go around the table. So Bernie, what musical bits stuck out for you? Did you have any favorite bits? Uh, it's kind of difficult to pick them out because everything was so great. I thought Nina Simone is just jaw dropping in it. Yeah, I mean, words cannot describe how powerful not only her performance, just her presence, her attitude. Yeah, just that is absolutely stunning. So can I ask you, Bernie, had you seen the film, I think it was called What Happened, Miss Simone? The one that's on Netflix. No, I'm I'm aware of it, but I haven't seen it, no. Because like her political side, the radicalised side of her comes out very strongly in that film. So when she reads that David Nelson poem, that was no surprise. Yeah, right, right. Sly and the Family Stone were amazing. There's a brief little snippet of Sonny Sharrock playing guitar and... I can understand why it's only a brief snippet because I guess his style of guitar playing with free jazz is a bit of an acquired taste, but I would have loved to have seen more of that. I mean, even, you know, like the Fifth Dimension were amazing. So good. It's it's difficult to narrow it down, but I, I think if I had to pick one as a standout, it would be Nina Simone. Yeah, he they did really focus quite a bit on Nina Simone. I felt like she was sort of the climax of the film in some sure. way. I think she was the only one, maybe the only person in the film to get a whole song. Like, well, she had we see her doing like two songs sure, in a yeah. poem, but mm. they let her go from start to finish because her songs are the most overtly political. And you know, so mm-hmm. we don't need to give any context. This is the whole pack 
package. The other thing I so I didn't realize was the song Young Gifted and Black had only been released like a, a couple of weeks before she performed it at the festival. It was a new mm-hmm. song. Any favorites for you, Anna? I think definitely Sly and the Family Stone, but mm-hmm. I'm a big Sly and the Family Stone fan. But that was great the way they were contextualized. That guy who was talking about being a suit and tie guy, the Motown style suit and tie guy, and then Sly and the Family Stone come out and he's like, wasn't the suit and tie guy anymore, you know? Just the, the unpredictability of them as a band. I mean, they're pretty loose, really. Yeah, oh yeah. When they, yeah. It's not like seeing a tight performance at all. It's not like watching Steely Dan or something like that. But that's the joy of Sly and the Family Stone. I mean, there's just a life to them. There's a real life to that band. They feel so organic. They feel like they've just come together to jam whoever they are. In terms of the politics, it's the everyday people thing is really Sly's a And that's why when they announced him, I mean, people knew him enough at that time to know that, yeah, maybe he wasn't even there yet. He introduced Sly, and the first thing that happens to the audience is the feeling of apprehension, because just because they introduced Sly doesn't mean he's there. (laughs) It also doesn't mean he's coming out immediately. In a number of ways, physically or mentally, was he going to come out on the stage? We're not sure. That was really exciting. I did like also seeing the Latin stuff. The oh, yeah, yeah. New yeah. Eurekan experience. I love Ray Barreto and Eddie Palmieri. Did a lot of stuff with at one stage. And I noticed actually in one of the earlier Harlem Cultural Festivals, Tito Puente was on the lineup of one of them, which would have been great. But I'm a Latin music fan, so it's really nice to see that as the inclusion in this Harlem Festival. Like it wasn't about just the African American point of view, it was all inclusive. It was a total Harlem Festival. You even got a few white guys up there playing in the bands as well, you know. I thought they must be feeling very vulnerable sitting up there. But. Uh, I was reading something interesting about Sly and the Family Stone. I mean, like Booker T and the MGs before them, they'd successfully integrated black and white musicians into the band and also integrated uh, yep. a couple of women in the band as well, which Booker T and the MGs hadn't done. So this was like the total integration experience. But I read something where, I think it was Greg, oh, I forgot his surname, the drummer had gone and said... Oh, Greg Erico. Greg Erico. He'd gone and said something about that he and the sax player had felt particularly vulnerable because the Black (laughs) Panthers had said, what are you doing with these white guys? Get them out of the band. It's interesting as well, watching 
seeing him play because he plays to the side. I've never seen a drummer who has yeah, his kit was old, to wasn't the it? side. Yeah, so he doesn't actually hide behind his drums. It's like the audience is, you know, off to the side of the stage rather than in front of the stage. I don't know whether that was something he did constantly, but it was a really interesting little aspect of watching this footage. But yeah, I love seeing the fifth dimension stuff. I actually yeah. felt really emotional watching the fifth dimension stuff. They talked a bit about them being accused of not being black enough. We were constantly being attacked because we weren't quote unquote black enough. Sometimes we were called the black group with the white sound. We didn't like that. We happen to be artists who are black and our voices sound the way they sound. And how do you color? That used to be one of our questions. How do you color a sound? Yeah, that idea of what is blackness. I mean, they are a black band. Well, you know, someone like Quincy Jones, well, obviously a lot of people have come up against this um, black musicians, but Quincy Jones, see, he, no one wanted to commission him to do orchestral music because they went, a black man can't do orchestral music. That was the assumption. That wasn't black music. So how wrong can one be? To listen to them play and do, especially when they did Aquarius and Let the Sunshine In mm. from here. And then to have, and pardon me, but I can't remember his name from Billy Davis Davis, Jr. That's right. Billy Davis go into his gospel breakout towards the end of that and really show blackness in its most obvious form was this kind of beautiful melding of sounds, I thought, that worked really, really well. Marilyn McCoo. See, I grew up watching Solid Gold, so I have a, a very fond attachment to seeing her and seeing her perform and seeing The Fifth Dimension. So, yeah, there was a lot of moments during this, to be totally honest, that I was feeling incredibly moved and quite teary watching it. For me, I think the acts that I was drawn the most to, I loved, loved, loved the gospel section of the show, which yeah. is interesting for a nice Jewish boy mm-hmm. like myself. But I think the, <laughs> but the, the point is made very well, like some interview footage with Edwin Hawkins, and they had that whole segment talking about, oh, happy day becoming a huge hit. Oh, happy day. Oh, happy day. When Jesus walks, when he walks, when Jesus walks, he walks on my sin. Oh, that's a happy. He's saying like their church did not like them flirting with secularism or getting their music out to the masses, and they say, yes, and they exactly. said, no, we we need to be performing at festivals like this. We need to be performing in nightclubs because young people today, they're not interested in the church, but if we can connect to them through music, then surely that's got to be a good thing. And it's, it's a long time story. I was reading the biography of uh, Sister Rosetta Tharp, 
who I would have loved to have seen as part of this. And she had the same sort of thing. She was doing stuff in the church, but she went and sang in the nightclubs and she was singing songs that were very risque as well. Not something mm. that I imagine the mm. Edward Hawkins singers would have ever done. And another act which I absolutely have adored for years are the Staples singers. They were lured over to record for Stax, but Stax didn't necessarily want them to be doing religious music, which they'd been recording for years. And they said, well, we've got to be true to ourselves, but what can we do? And then they sang all these songs of civil rights and that way they felt well, we're still big believers in that and we can still be true to ourselves and yet meet the stacks requirement, as it were. It's an interesting point because they're kind of one of the common links between what stacks and this documentary. They feature very heavily in both of them. And we still have Mavis Staples. I mm-hmm. mean, I think if it wasn't for COVID, she would still be touring. Some are pushing hard, some are holding back. You know, it's a shame. Where some people had The president said We would overcome We gotta keep pushing on Till the work is done It's been a change It's been a change I don't know if you remember this, Emma, but Mavis Staples was here a few years ago for Blues Fest, and I went just around the corner from you to see Mavis Staples and Taj Mahal play at the Prince of Wales Hotel. Oh, wow. As a, as a double bill. Wow. And I've got to say, they put them on in the wrong order. Don't get me wrong. I love, love, love Taj Mahal. But what happened was she did the first half of the show and raised the roof, raised everyone's heartbeat, and it was amazing. And then Taj Mahal comes out with a Hawaiian shirt and his band and they're doing I bet you going fishing all the time I'm going fishing they're doing all these really laid back relaxed type of songs you know it's like no this is how you start the show and then you end the yeah, show yeah, with the excitement they went the, they wrong, went the way. wrong way that reminds me see I think that watching this doco or at the time whatever was te- what was televised of it it would have been interesting to know what actually went to air because it seems like that the black music experience that was shown to the masses was quite curated and quite controlled. I remember watching this. It kind of brought up in my mind the Tammy show from, which was, I think, mm-hmm. 1964. So that was such a white, <laughs> quite a, such a white concert. I mean, Leslie Gore and, you know, all of that were on there. And then that was the first time that James Brown was actually on television, I believe. Mm. His performance on that show, he was the second top build. So the, the headliners were the Rolling Stones who were coming on after him. And see, the whole famous thing about the Tammy show was that James Brown came out and just sort of wiped the floor of everyone that came before him and was just so visceral and so exciting and the Rolling Stones were backstage going shitting their pants thinking (laughs) oh my god we've got to go on after this and they did look you know Stones were still fantastic but I can see where that that year came about and even Mick sort of gets a little bit more James Brown in the ankles if you know what I mean he starts (laughs) doing more of the little ankle swivels and things like that (laughs) there's something actually I don't know whether you guys realize but I was looking in just you know the participants there are quite a few talking heads in this as well who come on and chat Gladys Knight's one of them but unfortunately Mavis Staples is just as a voiceover 
She doesn't come on camera except for her performances, which are just amazing in themselves. But there's Greg Tate who talks a bit throughout mm-hmm. this. And, and the thing about Greg Tate's appearance, he's a you know music commentator and a local of Harlem and also was in bands or started um, music movements himself, different collectives and so forth. His contributions to this I found were just incredibly poetic and beautiful. Like he kept on coming up with these such gorgeous metaphors to describe what was being presented at this cultural event. And I really took them away and I kind of decided to look him up a little bit more afterwards. And he actually passed away in um, December last year at the age of 64. So sort of at the time that this was not long after it had come out on the Disney Channel, he died of cardiac arrest, which is a really, a real shame. And there is a sense of watching this thing, something like this of time passing and time slipping away, which makes it all the more powerful because it is something that you can't get back. You Some love and care Ain't nothing Ain't nothing I know you mentioned something in the week that another film that you wanted to bring up which was another found footage film, but at least the event hadn't been forgotten because there was a record of it, was Aretha Franklin's Amazing Grace. I know that there were technical difficulties. They didn't have the sound synced properly. And I think they were just sort of waiting for the technology to catch up so they could do the sound syncing properly. That's still in some ways a long way from Summer of Soul. Yes, there's a gospel element to Summer of Soul, but the Aretha Franklin film, if I sort of remember correctly, is more about that event. Summer of Soul is Absolutely. about a lot more. Yeah, but, yeah. The, but it was interesting to see we have these two great music documentaries from roughly the same period that had been, no one knew the footage existed for, for all this time. Yeah, exactly. And, that, and the Amazing Grace was the director was was Sidney Pollack. He got someone else, like, as he knew he was, like, he had about a year to live or something like that, he entrusted the guy who ended up sort of being the overall director, said, here, I trust you to get the sound and the film footage. To get, to get it, it right. right. I don't trust anyone else, so can you please do this? It's much more in line with what was going on with the Wattstacks film, minus the interview footage. I don't know whether this was the intention of Pollack when he was putting it together, but the sort of setting up of the church and providing that context of how it came together just by assembling the church hall really and and rolling stones hanging around at one point and all of that sort of stuff but it had the immersive feel of being at a church service I think that that was on purpose for Amazing Grace it was like let's not cut into the magic let's go on that journey let's all start speaking in tongues by the end of this sort of thing let's channel the spirit did you see the film Bernie? I have no, no, I haven't. Uh, you should. It's really remarkable, Bernie. It's like, mm-hmm. it's it's a journey. The thing is, I think you have anything about Harlem, there's no way. The gospel section in Summer of Soul plays out so strongly because if you've got anything about Harlem, there's no way that you can actually extract 
the gospel element not included. It it is so much a part of Harlem. I mean, even Mm -hmm. when I was in New York for an extended period of time, I went and did a Harlem tour, which was on a Sunday. So it involved, it was a Harlem gospel tour and they take you to a church, which was really uncomfortable because it was literally being a tourist bus shuffled through the church. And then they had the sort of upper section of the church where you could, all the tourists sat and looked down on the Mm. congregation. So it just felt incredibly Mm. wrong. Despite that, it was still a genuine Sunday church-going experience with all the elder women with their, ostensibly in their Easter bonnets, like these massive hats and the singing. I mean, I was moved to tears by the way they just burst into song. Like everyone seems so casual and you kind of even get that by watching in Summer of Soul, by watching, you know, how Mavis Staples was asked by Mahalia Jackson to help her out and start Oh Precious Lord because Haley wasn't feeling well. Sister Haley wasn't feeling well that day. So she's kind of wanted her to start off. And they just seemed to come from nothing and hit these, I don't know, these this power and this energy that does feel very spiritual. You can see how it's a mm-hmm. it's a very addictive thing. Trivia point I heard in that interview that I was mentioning before with Questlove, where apparently that was only Mavis Staples doing it on that afternoon was because Aretha Franklin bailed out in the last minute. Aretha was supposed to be at the festival. And really? She, there was like, uh, uh, what did he say? He says like an 11th hour withdrawal so they said oh Mavis would you do I looked at the the program sort of thing that and it wasn't listed but apparently the staple singers were there twice they went over two Sunday afternoons or whenever it was done and that second time was because Aretha pulled out so Aretha's loss was Mavis Staples' gain. It does seem that at the time they were the hardest working group in Seoul. They were they were quite ubiquitous. In Harlem, people are not focusing on the moon. They're dealing with the everyday realities. 69 was a tough time for Harlem because of the heroin epidemic. Another thing to discuss, Morris and Bernie, was that incorporation of the moon landing mention, which I thought was interesting, and how, because that was such a seminal moment, let's just say in white history, and how they, they even had footage of the news crews interviewing people at the Harlem Cultural Festival that was going on at the same time and saying, how do you feel about the moon landing? And they were like, oh, well, yeah, well, that's great, but we don't give a shit, basically. Like, don't spend the millions of dollars sending someone to the moon. Why don't you think of feeding poor people in Harlem or poor people wherever they are across America, which was a very interesting point because I think if you were presented with the TV narrative or the, you know, Mm. the news narrative of that time, no one could get enough of the moon landing. But I don't think Neil Armstrong or Buzz Aldrin were heroes to, let's say, the average man on the street in Harlem. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Like you say, it's funny that, you know, that's the accepted narrative is that uh, everyone was just totally uh, hooked on the idea and amazed by all this. But as you say, it meant nothing to the majority of people, particularly people in those places, in those circumstances, you know? Yeah, uh, exactly. Interesting us talking about, I mean, all of us, all three of us, none of us are in the United States and I'm guessing none of us grew up in Harlem. This film and the music seems to speak so much to us. It really is universal. Mm. Exactly. Anyone can hear a great Motown song, can hear a great Stax song, can hear from any of the other 
ton of labels that were not the big two or the big three if you count Atlantic and still mm, be, mm. you know, incredibly moved by this music. Here we are all these years later. And the other thing is, because like, we've been talking so much about the soul side of things, and you also mentioned earlier, on Emma, about the Latin side of things, but one of the big surprises for me, because I didn't know he'd already been in America this early, was Hugh Masekela. <laughs> Grazing in the Grass was one of the biggest songs on the planet. My father realized there was this real hunger for black Americans to feel and see and taste what it would be like to be African. Who'd apparently come to America yeah, yeah. in the early mm, 60s. Yeah. I mean, the first I heard, like probably millions of others, of Hugh Masekela was the result of Paul Simon's Graceland album. And pretty much Paul Simon, he all he did was the Graceland songs, but he'd like do a couple of songs. Right, now here's a few songs from Miriam Makiba. Now here's a few songs from Ladysmith Black Mombazo. And now here's a few songs from Hugh Masekela. So I got to see the great man. But they, they say like he was heavily involved in the civil rights movement and just watching him perform as a trumpet player. The crime is that... We don't talk enough about what a great jazz trumpeter he was. He's mm-hmm. just sensational player. Exactly. And that was picking up what was going on in America wasn't exclusively American and the apartheid that was happening in South Africa at the time. It was a sort of like the American black population was starting to tap into sort of international movements as well and that kind of brotherhood and sisterhood right across the world, which was just, you know, really when you think about it, it was quite unique for that time because it was only... Um, Wow, what you've, you've by 1969, you've only got 20 years of television. You know, we're still we were still very disconnected in the world. We weren't as even global as we are now in terms of travel and getting onto a plane and stuff like that. So, for him to be there and sort of be part of that Harlem event and be able to communicate the experience that he came from as well, like grazing the grass. I mean, it's such a joyful song, and that's what always has got me about African American music. For someone who's a white girl, didn't grow up in a particularly wealthy area of Australia. In fact, it was a very low socioeconomic area. I speak uh, to you, Morris, of uh, Norlane in Geelong, so you'll know probably what I mean Mm -hmm. when I say that. But I have absolutely no connection to the experiences of Mm -hmm. this film. Yet I watch this and I listen to the music and I watch these performances and it makes me cry. Because of that, through that, as a result, the creative expression of that oppression has managed to produce an incredibly emotionally authentic style of music or styles of music. And that's where in them performing, all those artists, I mean, we are looking at them, it's all cut together. So you're looking at all the peak moments of where the performances are exceptionally good. But all those moments are very, they're not super polished. They're very genuine. It's like, like even today, you know, you it's not like watching a Beyonce show, which is curated and choreographed and put together to the inch of its life, right? These just feel really loose. It just feels like people getting up and singing. They're not even super operatic in their style. It's not all that melismatic kind of vocal style. Even, yeah, all that sort of nonsense. It's just true because it's so from the heart. And I 
think it's got a sense of what have we got to lose, which is what that movement of the time was really about. Like they'd lost so much. Let's just go for broke. We need expression. We need to make change. So that speaks to everyone. Me, my emotionally oppressed self (laughs) who isn't comfortable being that raw and exposed, it really moves me because I guess I I see a, a certain freedom of expression there that's particularly exciting and even the positivity. The word that they use a lot in the film is celebration. So celebration and exuberance is a worldwide concept. It's not something that is unique to any community. And us as Australians on the other side of the planet and a Brit on the other side of the planet can appreciate joy and happiness and seeing seeing these people coming back to something that we said really early on. You were talking about Nina Simone, though, and you're saying this is an event that as well as celebration could have turned dark. It could have turned violent. And that whole segment with Nina Simone, are you ready? Ready to do what is necessary? To do what is necessary to do? Are you ready, black man? Black woman, are you ready? Are you ready, ready, ready? Give me good now. Give me good now. Give me good now. Are you ready to kill if necessary? Is your mind ready? Is your body ready? Yes. Are you ready to kill? She says at one point. Yeah. Are you ready yeah. to burn down the burn the houses? Take to it's it's really you know you listen to that and you think, geez, that's pretty strong. You know, if yeah. someone was to stand up and say that now, they'd be called a terrorist. It's strong stuff. In the context of that documentary I mentioned earlier on, what happened, Miss Simone? That was no surprise to me. In mm-hmm. fact, I don't remember if it was that footage that they had in What Happened, Miss Simone, but there was definitely a moment where she's mm-hmm. in performing live in concert and saying something very similar. She's terrifying. She was ready to kill. She was angry. I mean, that whole Mississippi God Dan from from a few years ago. She was angry, but she was not going to roll up to the Harlem Cultural Festival and say, I'm going to sing My Baby Just Cares For Me. I'm going to do my rendition of Here Comes the Sun. I'm not going to sing Don't Smoke in Bed. No, obviously not, because... This was her opportunity to sing to people what was of their political concern, but it could have gotten nasty. The whole tone, as we've been saying, was celebratory and what mm-hmm. could have turned nasty never did. Have you guys seen um, the Apple series 1971, the year music changed everything? I haven't. I've, I've got the book. I invited you around <laughs> to watch it. I've got the book on like a pile of books to read. I do have the book. And the, the guy who wrote that, oh, God, I've Oh, yeah, uh, David Davis. He does remember. this excellent podcast called A Word in Your Ear. Okay, all right. Uh, he's one of the most entertaining and knowledgeable music guys. Have you seen it, Bernie? Nineteen seventy. No, no, I haven't. I'm kind of. Uh, I haven't seen it, anything. <laughs> well, it's it's no, it's not an easy one to. Is to it get just on Apple TV? Yeah, yeah, and you oh. know how Apple can be yeah. very proprietorial. Yeah. So basically, it's on Apple TV. You can't buy it as physical media yet, as far as I know and I doubt it would be in the near future. Mm-hmm. But my God, what a series. So I think it's like six parts, five, six, seven parts. It is 
comparable to Summer of Soul in the comp- um, the quality of the storytelling and how it's all put together. It speaks to a lot of what Summer of Soul is talking about. It starts with the first episode is around Marvin Gaye's What's Going On and mm-hmm. that politicisation. There's also an excellent one on Gil Scott Heron, not just solely on him, but sort of posited around that politics, his politics. But it's got, it does this really lovely thing where it picks out and it sort of subtitles or it does it a little bit more creatively certain lyrics on the screen as they're performing mm-hmm. and, and brings them up. So to bring that pertinence between the lyrics and the actual music that's playing, but it even goes into the like the Laurel Canyon movement and what was happening in Britain and everything at the time. And it's literally pretty much well well it's only 1971 so it is about in terms of the year that changed everything it's referring to the way that it ties into politics and social movement but i would really recommend seeing that it's especially after off the back of summer of soul it's a really nice experience to have a watch of that and i've watched it through twice and was incredibly enamoured with it and the footage. And to see that similar to, like, you know, 1969's in one of those, in that creative um, sweet spot, I'd call it, 68 to 72 is pretty spectacular. And to see everything that was released in 1972 in this one series, it blows your mind. It absolutely blows Mm -hmm. your mind. I mean, you couldn't do something on 2020 music like that it wouldn't you wouldn't have the same effect this is you well, not, know, not for another 50 years anyway i guess exactly this yeah, is exile yeah. on main street this is what's going on this is tapestry this is you know it just keeps on one album after another and master of reality you 71 wasn't it i think that's probably uh black sabbath yep 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 yeah yeah, yeah. it even talks about they talk about the who who's next they talk about the emergence of bowie and the bowie stuff Stuff is really interesting because Bowie's kind of almost unheard of it at that time and it's more about him trying on different hats and seeing what's going to fit and what's going to be the Bowie persona so yeah very interesting Gladys Knight and the Pips I bet you're wondering how I do We've been talking for quite a fair amount of time. Bernie, any final words about Summer of Soul? Just that it's, you know, it lives up to the hype. It's an amazing film. It's amazing to see footage of such sort of renowned legendary performers that you haven't seen before. And, uh, yeah, I, I can't recommend it enough, really. It's, yeah, it's terrific. Emma, did you get a chance to see it at the Astor when they had the screens? No, I didn't. Whereabouts was that? It was September, like between the lockdowns. Ah, uh, okay. All right. No, no, I didn't get to see it. I didn't, I didn't get, but I can tell you right now that if the Astor programs another set of screenings, I'm going to go see it. And I'm going to buy the Blu-ray, first chance I get. Absolutely. This has been absolutely incredible. <laughs> you know now that you cannot see say no to come back to this show because I think I think after this 
we will want you like every show. Yeah, you, you have to come back after this, Emma. Yeah, It would be lovely and, and to be able to meet Tim as well. Have you guys done Do the Right Thing? No, because that was sort of more... There, there are some films where you sort of... That, that would be our remake. Uh, yeah. Where you go, is it is it enough music on film? There's just so, certain films that... That was one film that I was really into the soundtrack. So when it came out and had a, a massive impact on me with in terms of that music film combination but yeah it, it depends on your definition guys it's we're fairly loose aren't we but it tends to be about music or about say music uh, actually no i can't really even dis- define music culture as a fool's errand well, trying music to do culture does make it qualified because i think fairly early on we did that uh, penelope spheris film suburbia oh okay yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even bring her into it, though. She does so much stuff on music. Well, we've toyed with the idea of doing the uh, decline of Western civilization. Oh, yeah. At some yes. point. But that would have oh, to be yeah, a, you probably a should. series of epic episodes, I think. Unlike this one, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He'll cut it down to make us really super tight and punchy. You it's going to be the, the tightest hour you've ever listened to. It's just going to be like <laughs> slapped around the face for an hour. So once again, thanks so much, Emma, for being part of this. This has absolutely been just a magnificent conversation. For those people who heard at the beginning of the show, you talk about The Bride of Frankenstein, and they want to read what you do. Where can they find you? Probably the easiest is to go to emmawestwood.net. I tried to make it as simple as possible. That's just where I kind of, that's my little vanity site. I'll put that in the show notes. Now, I know that you are doing Primal Screen on Triple R from time to time. Only from time to time. Also, I'm on Twitter at Emma J. Westwood. You know, I put some stuff up there. You know, movements of what I'm doing here and there. That's probably the easiest places to find me. Okay, so anyone wants to follow us, we're at on facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash see here podcast you can email us at see here podcast at gmail.com and uh, we are occasionally uh, on instagram at see here podcast when i remember to post things <laughs> so they're worth it when i do post them believe me keep your eyes now, peeled we haven't gone and planned for next month yet keep an eye out on the social medias or if you don't do social media then just download the podcast next month for a delightful, delightful surprise. surprise and we'll give you all the stimulating conversation that you've come to expect from our podcast <laughs> thanks very much for uh, anyone out there who's listened thanks to anyone out there who has told other people that we exist and said hey they're not bad these people they know what they're talking about until next month please look after each other we didn't talk about this at the start of the show because really you're getting this in the news all the time but the world has become more fucked up than ever we try to add a little bit of happiness to your ear holes. So please look after each other. Be nice to each other. Don't say shit on social media. It's not nice. Until next month, go in peace and be well. All the best. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
For the ones finding new ways to ensure the job always gets done. For the ones wearing many hats. For the ones who are hands-on, even from far away. And the ones keeping business moving forward. We are Granger, Offering professional-grade industrial supplies, plus real-time product availability and access to experts ready to answer your toughest questions. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.